The Enviro Show with Nancy Richards. the Enviro Show. Thank you very much for joining us. It's the Green Green Show right here on SAFM and I'm Nancy Richards. Kim Winter and Albert Clarsons are on the other side of the line, on the other side of the glass that is, and we have you on the other side of your radio and if you'd like to give us a call, join in the conversation, do it. 0892 10 And don't forget, check our Facebook page. It's the Enviro Show on SAFM where we try to put all the details. So let me tell you what we've got lined up tonight. Well, with the United United Nations Climate Change Summit recently having taken place in New York, we thought we'd find out a little bit more about the outcomes. Um, President Jacob Zuma there said at the summit earlier that uh, uh, they need to send a clear signal that adaptation will be accorded the same priority as mitigation in the new agreement. Well, what does that really mean to us here in South Africa? Kevin James of the Global Carbon Exchange will be giving us his uh, very educated opinion. That's where we're starting. Then, at a rather more grassroots level, at the Spring Break Project Open Day and Festival at Lentehir Psychiatric Hospital in Mitchell's Plain yesterday, uh, in fact, Wednesday, yes, yesterday, it was a very happy event and I spoke to Latifa Papier, for, she's a volunteer at the Green Resource Centre and she'll be telling us exactly how things went there and what their aim is. We'll also find out about uh, an accelerator programme for green entrepreneurs. That, uh, in our green goodie, we'll be talking to a resident of Grassy Park, he's Kelvin Cochrane, who initiated the practice of civic-led ecological rehabilitation and earned himself the title of eco-warrior in the Ecologic Awards. And in our forage feature, we'll be going berry picking in uh, Amatoli. So stay with us for all of that. Just a quick bit of eco info. Well, I'm sure you've been hearing all about the water restrictions that were reported earlier. Well, it seems they got it wrong. It's not water restrictions, Randwater spokesperson Justice Mohali said. We are assessing the situation for those areas that have enough water. We want to redirect some of it to areas that do not have water. We want to build water levels to help those struggling areas. Um, And it seems that uh, high-lying areas such as Bedford View and Primrose still had water shortages because it's just not enough water uh, pressure to push the water up there. So whatever is the case, one day we could all be experiencing water restrictions. So I guess the message is loud and clear that we need to just conserve water, every drop of it, wherever we can. So stay tuned. You're listening to The Enviro Show. Have you joined the Expresso Travel Community? Watch Expresso on weekday mornings for globetrotter tips and great travel prizes. SMS the keyword TRAVEL to 33728. Then follow the link and complete the steps to join. SMSs cost 1 Rand 50 and T's and C's apply. Tune into Expresso on SABC3 every weekday morning to see if you're a winner. But remember, you've got to be a member of the exciting Expresso travel community to win. When you purchase prescription spectacles at Specsavers, you can now get either a free eye test or 500 Rand off your frame or lens add-ons. You get to choose. That's right. Choose either a free eye test or 500 Rand off your frame or lens add-ons. Offer available for a limited time only. Visit specsavers.co.za for more information. T's and C's apply. Specsavers for affordable eye care and a whole lot more. 
The province of KwaZulu-Natal has adopted a zero-tolerance stance against unethical behavior in the public service sector by launching the I Do Right campaign. The KZN office of the Premier is hosting roadshows to raise awareness and enlist the support of civil society, business and labor in reported suspected fraudulent and corrupt practices. Join us as we say I Do Right even when nobody's watching. KwaZulu-Natal Provincial Government, working for growth, development and a better future for all. The Enviro Show. We're talking matters environmental. Reported back from the United Nations Climate Change Summit in New York recently was that President Jacob Zuma was calling for a treaty that balances climate action with developmental needs, that ensures the fair participation of all countries. In fact, he said, we must reiterate our position that developed countries tackle the lead in this fight by ambitiously reducing their greenhouse gas emissions by providing the necessary means of implementation to developing countries, particularly to African countries, to enable us to adapt to climate change and to transition to low-carbon economies. Well, what does this really, really mean? And is he a lone voice in this? Well, we have on the line Kevin James, who is the owner of GCX, Global Carbon Exchange. Hi, Kevin. Yes, good evening, Nancy. Nice, nice. No, excellent. Always nice to have you with us and give us your educated uh, opinion on this because sometimes we read these things and it all sounds like, what? Um, Unpack it for us. I mean, is Jacob Zuma's a lone voice? Are we hiding behind... You know, the big guys have got to do it first. What's the story here? Okay, so um, we have a legacy year with these uh, COP20 now approaching. So we've had 20 years of multilateral climate negotiations, okay? And um, the Kyoto Protocol, which uh, first commitment period was 2008 to 2012, that came and went. And uh, that was really characterized by developed versus developing mm. and the onus being on the developed world to fund um, climate change mitigation and the developing world not to really have any binding targets to reduce their emissions. It's now become more apparent as we've seen the impacts of climate change emerge and become actually physically felt by a lot of regions around the world. I think what we're seeing right now is people believing more, most countries, and, uh, and that can really be uh, seen by 120 out of 100 and probably 190 or a little bit more heads of state actually coming to the summit to represent their countries. There were obviously noticeably a couple that were not there, very, very visibly noticed, actually. And, uh, you know, countries like Canada, Australia, China, India, Russia, they, they, they weren't there. And that also sends a signal, you know, just before the United Nations General Assembly. So what it really means is now it's not about developed versus developing anymore. I think every country realizes that they have to take some kind of responsibility if they are big emitters. And you must remember, out of those 190 countries, there's probably only 20 that are producing 90% of the carbon emissions on this globe. So to reduce carbon emissions, that's a much smaller gathering, actually. But, you know, what's going on right now is uh, traditionally the big uh, impasse in this whole negotiations has been around the United States' non-participation, non-ratification of the Kyoto Protocol, China's unwillingness to take on binding targets because the United States has not done it. So a little bit of a, a playground brawl that has really reached its shelf life, and that we have to get beyond that. And I think it was uh, Grasso Michel who basically said uh, in her speech that, uh, you know, we really be, have to be a bit more mature about this. So I think for the first time what we're seeing is right now actually the Durban platform, which was agreed at Durban at COP17, and uh, we actually got something named after Durban, which is fantastic. Uh, the Durban platform is really an agreement that has to be reached by, by the end of 2015 at COP21 next year. But the, the draft agreement has to emerge from this COP20 uh, in Lima this year. 
uh, where more details about binding targets by countries uh, that they will sort of achieve these targets by 2020. So it's getting down to the detail now. And there's a lot of pledges, all of it at the summit, non-binding. I mean, the reason for the summit was just to, you know, ahead of the Paris um, uh, COP20, um, sorry, uh, Lima uh, COP20 this year. They just wanted to get uh, everyone on the same page and say, listen, we've got a lot to agree on to get a, a draft agreement through, and, and there's a lot of detail. So let's create some momentum ahead of that conference. And, and, and yes, there was, there was a good showing of, of, of business, finance, civil society, government, all their massive turnout, and everyone's now making pledges, and that's really what's happening. But as I said, non-binding pledges. So really the, 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 the proof of all of this will come out with, when, when when actually company, uh, countries actually put their money where their mouth is and start saying, well, we will reduce X amount below certain levels by 2020. And that should happen the beginning of next year. It really does feel like that what, you know, whatever level one is at, everybody needs to be there. A little bit concerning that Canada, China, Australia, Russia, what, what were the other countries that you mentioned that weren't there? Why are they not there? Is it Does this all boil down to money in the end? It feels like it is largely to do with finance. Well, a big disappointment that China wasn't there. It would have been fantastic for President Obama to be able to look the Chinese Premier in the eye and, you know, have a discussion about it. They are the two biggest emitters in the world. Uh, Stephen Harper from Canada, obviously, he's, uh, he came into power. He uh, sort of got rid of this whole Kyoto thing. It was very inconvenient for them mining their tar sands uh, in, in, in the uh, western part of the country. Uh, Australia, same thing happened with uh, Tony Abbott coming in and getting rid of the carbon tax as well as any carbon trading scheme ambitions and after Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard, that disaster. So what you're seeing is really the result of bipartisan uh, um, politics where, where, you know, we're in a, been, been pretty tough economically and, and what you find in these countries is uh, the more conservative governments come in and they take control and make sure that people got money in their pockets uh, at all costs, even if they are longer term costs. So that's what we're seeing with a lot of these countries. Um, President Putin, he's obviously got bigger, big, bigger issues uh, and, and, and more important priorities. Um, yeah, India, Prime Minister, no real reason. And actually, actually, a big disappointment was Angela Merkel, who wasn't there as well. You know, And it was actually um, David Cameron who, uh, who said how disappointed he was that these other major emitters weren't, uh, weren't at, the, at the conference. And even at the conference, uh, I've read some stories that uh, you know, they were supposed to all get together and, and, and converge into a group having dinners and that together and they all went their separate ways so at that level i'm not sure that there is you know there, there, there's there's uh, obviously conflicts of interest if you want to call it that they have vested interests in certain directions these go against those interests but the interesting part is that while we're talking about federal uh, politics here and, and and government leaders the states are doing their different things the ground up there's a groundswell of activity from the ground up in terms of the states doing their own thing they are you know when the united states doesn't want to as a country get put a price on carbon but you're seeing uh, certain of the states um, joining certain regional carbon trading schemes on their own accord so you're seeing a lot of leadership from cities and from um, from states but the federal um, you know where the politics is very very murky and based on i suppose really power and money you know yes like you say that could be a big big deterrent from progressing down the uh, you know positive path in these negotiations I, 
I know you said it tongue in cheek. You know that um, the Russian President Putin has probably got uh, other bigger issues that, that are more pressing. And I think what could possibly be bigger than the planet? I mean, it, it really is just a huge issue. But just going back to, you know, the point that I was making, it seems like, you know, whatever everybody else is doing, we all have to take individual responsibility. It's like members of family. Each and every one has got to do their bit, whatever it may be. No matter how big or small they are, they all got to take their sort of proportionate um, thing and we uh, the responsibility. And I keep hearing President uh, Jacob Zuma saying, you know, we, we the rich countries have to show the way. You guys have got to lead the way. China and America being the biggest emitters. Nonetheless, it doesn't give us an escape clause, does it? It we still have to do our bit. We still have to make uh, our own commitment. You know, I suppose it's just, yes, it, it's all our responsibilities. And I think anyone who denies climate change happening and denies anthropogenic uh, activity causing climate change to happen is actually, you know, at this stage, despite what everyone says, they, they, they are, are doing us a huge disservice. And they're doing our, our children and our children's children a huge disservice. We have a massive issue here. And it's not only a climate issue, Nancy. Even for people who do not totally agree or believe that they know better than probably the biggest, um, uh, what do you call it, um, consensus of scientists ever on one subject around uh, climate science. If people don't agree, they must realize that, you know, with the growing population, anthropogenic activity, human activity has caused such damage to this planet. Uh, you know, climate change and global warming is just one of nine planetary boundaries that we have a species has caused us, our planet, to go beyond. And of, of, of the four of those nine, climate change is just the one that we've gone beyond. So, you know, we need to realize the big number is two degrees Celsius. An average temperature increase of two degrees or more in, on this planet will cause runaway climate change. And then we will understand what it means that everything is connected because there will be a domino effect. So to keep it below two degrees Celsius, there are some real numbers. And what, the, what the, these countries have pledged and you know yes we talk about individuals doing their bit but it is absolutely demoralizing when countries who have got massive carbon emissions and could quite simply for the benefit of their people the benefit of their economies go to go down a road to reducing those emissions refuse to do so because what they've pledged right now according to the summit will create what they've calculated a three and a half degrees celsius increase in temperatures uh, the, the pledges that have been made by 2020 which is just not good enough two degrees celsius is you know without with, with, without question the, the highest we can go in africa we can't go be, be uh, higher than one and a half degrees celsius because we are the most sensitive to the impact and consequences of climate change so very reckless at the moment but at the same time we've got to look at the positives if you look at the um europe and the united kingdom the united kingdom continues to show great leadership i mean they've um, all committed to a 40 percent reduction by 20 uh 2030 below 1990 levels 80 percent reduction by 2050 i mean the united kingdom in the first commitment of the kyoto um, protocol pledged 12 and a half percent by 2012 and actually they've now they actually reached 20 percent reduction so you know these countries are seeing the benefits mm. of it they've mm. seen the benefits of embracing the green economy and the then and and, and the, the the knock-on impact that it has in terms of reducing pollution reducing waste um, transferring to renewable energies and the health and environmental impacts that these things are having. So it all makes sense, but we just need to understand. And the in another interesting part is where all the influence lies. You talk about money, Nancy. 
But where the influence really lies is with the investors, the funds that have got these trillions of dollars to invest. And what we're seeing now for the first time is a commitment to divestment from fossil fuel assets, which could see, if investors don't uh, watch, uh, be careful, they could see a lot of the investment into these assets sitting stranded where actually these fossil fuel companies will not be able to grow anymore and companies will not, or funds will not be able to extract their funds from these companies. Yeah, as you point out, it can be done. You know, these emissions can be cut, and if everybody sort of pulls together, it really can happen. Kevin, we will no doubt call on you once again because it's always good to sort of get a bit of a catch-up, a bit of a wake-up, as it were, to what's going on with the big picture. So take care, look after yourself, and we'll speak again soon. Thank you so take much, care. Nancy. Take Thanks care. a lot. Yep. Kevin James, he's the owner of GCX, and if you'd like to find out, do check their site. There's all sorts of information on it. That's Global Carbon Exchange. It's gcxafrica.co. Well, kind of so much for the global picture, but yesterday I got a very much more local one, a very grassroots picture. I went along to the Lendercure Psychiatric Hospital in Mitchell's Plain, where they had themselves an open day to celebrate their spring break project. You might remember we heard a little bit about it on the show some while back. It was the brainchild of psychiatrist Dr. John Parker. The idea being to improve the well-being of the patients with mental problems, not with drugs, but through the environment. Well, there at the open day was a whole collection of speakers. There was Ian McCullum, David Greer, a whole bunch of comedians, Riyad Musa, Chester Missing were in the lineup. But I got to chat to one of the ladies who was showing visitors around the Green Resource Centre. My name is Latifa Papir and I am the coordinator of the Green Resource Centre. With me I have about 11 interns each year and they're from WESA, World Environmental Services, and we actually revamp the whole hospital. The way that I mean revamp is actually we make it beautiful to the eye and appealing and a place of healing. Because you know Lentegeer, the meaning of Lentegeer means spring. And um, we cannot have the name Lentegeer and not show what it means. So. We are, in essence, we are here to show how healing takes place and how the hospital could actually be a place for the community and a real place for everybody to come. And what we've done, especially with the resource centre, is we've opened it up to the public where we've had school kids coming near planting trees, we've had Miss Earth coming and planting and donating trees, we've had Sanby doing our centre island, and the most important is on Mandela Day. Each year for Mandela Day, we do something else. So two years ago, we did the Ward 5, where we did the whole indigenous garden. Last year, we did the main center island. And this year, we started embarked on a new project where our patients that come in, their family members, sometimes they, most of them are from disadvantaged communities, and they don't always have food. So what we've done as a hospital is actually accumulate all non-perishable goods and we have it in the resource center so once a doctor see a need for the family they actually come in here and they come and just come and fetch the parcel so if there's anybody that's willing to give any donations towards our project that would be really grateful i mean we're looking for blankets we're looking for baby things but most importantly food and um, we also have two t-shirts the one is maladjusted and normal and that is our fundraising for the hospital and as well as destigmatize mental illness if we look at the word normal normal actually means square so we're asking if you're square and you conform to society are you normal because when we look at society, you get people killing and raping in the communities and then 
are they normal? Where we have patients coming in here, as soon as they're stable, as soon as they get their medication, they are the same as me and you. And that is one thing that we'd really like to let everybody know that even though patients have mental illness, even though the stigma attached to mental illness, once they are controlled, they are like me and you. And that is my function here, to just to show the community that we as a hospital we care and that we're changing mental illness revolutionarily, <laughs> one step at a time. Yeah, one tree at a time. Yeah. And I notice that you're wearing a T-shirt that says Mal adjusted. Yes. <laughs> They're great. And that's part of your fundraising thing. Yes. And yes. The, the spring break day, the, yeah. the awareness day, has been part of the fundraising. Yes. How's it gone? It's gone beautifully. We didn't expect so many speakers. We didn't. We had comedians. I mean, even the public that's been here, it's been inspirational and inspiring to hear people come onto a mental hospital, so to say, and they see this beauty and they cannot believe it. I've had compliments whole day for what we've done. And you know, if you do things, even myself and my team, if we do things, you actually don't really get the recognition until somebody comes in and says, wow, because we don't see it. We're doing it and we're doing it because we love it. And then you get everybody just coming and saying, wow, that's beautiful, that's inspirational, you know, and the whole perception of a mental institution changes and that I think we've succeeded with today and I hope that we'll be doing it for the next, I don't know, maybe 50 years going forward until the stigma of mental illness is eradicated. Well, you will be doing it because certainly you've, you've put down enough trees to, to be, produce a forest. Yes. <laughs> um, and planting the trees has been part of a big project. I see you've got little um, saplings all growing at the entrance. Yes. How many trees have you actually planted? Do you have any idea? Oh, I think we're about 400. 400 to around about 800. I'm really, I'm not sure. What I do know is we have four olive groves and in each olive grove there's about 30 trees and that would be a long term, especially for the patients, for them to get an income. So as soon as those saplings have grown and they produce olives will be organic, olives will be coming from Lindeghe as well as olive oil. We're starting with a beehive where we'll be having all our bees and we'll be having honey coming from Lindeghe. So those are all things but we're aiming for 10,000 trees on the hospital which is going to take a lot of time and a lot of patience <laughs> but once they're grown it'll be wonderful and and the effect of the, the the patients the residents if you like who come here do you already start to see beneficial effects as, as a result of having an environment that's greener oh, oh yes most definitely you know uh, if you if you see the patients and you see how they change when they do the gardening I think that's one of the most healing even for myself it's so healing because it shows a purpose they have a purpose and any of the skills that they've been taught here they actually use it in the community they go back home and they can plant their own tree um, not only trees they can plant their own fruit they can plant if they wish and then they can actually eat from that so I think that that is one of the most inspirational things and you literally actually see them in the healing process and you see them smiling and bonding with that ground when they touch that ground you know just the smell of the ground itself that is unbelievable anybody should try to just at least plant if it's a vegetable if it's a plant just do it and you'll actually see how you calm yourself in doing it and you will with that, you will actually realize how the healing effects 
fix our patients. Tell me about you. How did you get involved in this? What's your background? Ooh, my background. I had a little community garden and I have a child with intellectual disability and my daughter used to attend Lenta here, one of the doctors, and she was always raving about how she used to eat from this little patch that I had in the community. And the doctors then eventually decided they're going to come and have a look at this garden because they wanted to install this in, in the hospital, sorry. And when they came and they saw the vegetables, they were totally impressed. And then they asked me to um, be part of the facility board. And once I was on part of the facility board, we decided to open the green resource to inform people of what we're doing. And I was the most likely candidate to be doing this. So I'm still volunteering after two years. <laughs> but, but it's been a fantastic journey because I, I think I've healed myself, even though I don't have a mental illness. I think that this gardening has healed me and heal somebody else. And that's also one of the healing process when you heal somebody else and you see the, the outcome and you can smile and say, wow, I've, you know, I've been part of that. So, yes, that's my journey. <laughs> hmm. you just got to love it, haven't you? That was Latifa Papia. She is a, a volunteer at the Lendekure Spring Break Project and she is coordinating or volunteering at their Green Resource Centre. Well, if you'd like to find out a little bit more, if you find yourself in that area, it's, it's really, it's really, really special. We've put up the link on our Facebook page. It's Lendekure Spring Break Project. So if you want to have a check at our Facebook page, there you'll find it. And we're SA, um the Enviro Show on SAFM. The Enviro Show on SAFM. What a very enterprising project there at Lendachur. And it's actually green entrepreneurs that Impact Amplifier are aiming at with their Green Pioneer Accelerator Programme. It's been developed for early stage companies who are looking to position themselves and, and just get uh, get themselves up and running a little bit bigger. In fact, they, what they say is, are you an entrepreneur working on a highly scalable, scalable product or services that mitigates the effects of climate change? Does your business introduce renewable energy sources to market or reduce consumption? A whole list of questions that they ask. Well, the program's been running both in Kenya and in South Africa, and uh, just explain exactly what it's all about and how it might be interesting for somebody who's got a green business. We have on the line a partner at Impact Amplifier. He's Max Pichulik. Pichulik. Uh, Max, are you there? Hi there, Nancy. I'm here. Good. Pichulik, have I pronounced your name right? Depends where you're saying it from. If, it's, if you're in Germany, it's uh, Pichulik. Uh, if you're in South Africa, it's Pichulik will do just fine. Okay. Let's go with Max, eh? <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> okay, uh, Impact Amplifier. Now, what what is Impact Amplifier briefly, and tell us a little bit more about the Green Pioneer Accelerator Program. Sure. So, Impact Amplifier is uh, quite a small advisory firm in Johannesburg and Cape Town that works throughout the continent, and our core focus is to look at addressing social environmental issues using market-based or business solutions to solve them. So I guess traditionally in development, we've looked to the nonprofit sector and governments and large development organizations to try to solve social issues or environmental issues. And increasingly, there's a shift and a major shift that's uh, really looking at what entrepreneurs can do to really have a positive social impact, grow scalable businesses, but also address large social problems, whether they're in edu affordable education, affordable health, and in this program particularly focused on the green economy as we're seeing um, major social and environmental fractures 
occurring not only in South Africa, but also East Africa. Makes so much sense, doesn't it? It makes you feel it's part of the bigger plan. If we can uh, develop ourselves and make the environment better at the same time, it makes a huge amount of sense. So what you are doing, from what I understand it, Green Pioneer Accelerator Program, are you looking to take businesses or, or initiatives who've got themselves started and just need a, a leg up to the next stage? Yes, I think, you know, what's happening in South Africa is we have these green pioneers and in East Africa, and it's a continental wide phenomenon where we're having these entrepreneurs really starting the most innovative products and services that are often benefiting the poor. Sometimes they're developing products into government value chains, you know, especially if it's in waste and water solutions and microgrid energy solutions, but they're their problems are sort of threefold. You know, they they're, they're might not necessarily been entrepreneurs before, so there's definitely a capacity gap on how to grow a business. Um, they have to access new markets with these products and services. You know, if you're starting a, a, a prepaid um, solar microgrid for townships or into low-cost houses, these products and services have never been developed, so you've really got to create something out of effort. Um, and that market access is a large issue. And then obviously, if you want to scale anything, um, capital's a problem. And um, I listened briefly to one of your previous callers who spoke about all these trillions of dollars of investor money that's uh, positioned mm. to, to move into the green economy. But the, the, the funny issue is that there is a lot of money positioned. But the problem is, is that the businesses are not at the scale that they're actually required for investors to put money in them. They're just too risky and too early stage. So this Green Pioneer program was really a continental pilot between um, the Dutch government uh, through an organization called Hivos in, in, in Holland, um, uh, an online investor platform for Africa called VC for Africa, um, ourselves in South Africa and partners Growth Africa in Kenya to really come together and find the best green, early stage Green Pioneers really develop them, get them ready for investment, get their funding documents ready, and then unlock them to a global network of investors. And hopefully, if we, if we, you know, if we really pick well and we really do our job right, we can, I think, really tackle some really, really big issues. Early stage green pioneers. You know, I can't help feeling, uh, what was that uh, business that you suggested, a prepaid micro solar grid for the townships? Was, it, was that you just threw yeah, that one out? that is just... That was just a, a small example yeah, of yeah. a project we worked on. But, it, a, a but it's exactly it's exactly those sort of uh, exactly that sort of level of thing that we should be looking at. But for a lot of people, the green economy and green development and green initiatives is a bit of an unknown quantity. You know, you've got to be a bit of a visionary to understand, or either that, or there's got to be some sort of necessity as a mother invention. So I mean, if you see that things are going wrong, you can find a solution to it. But it's not everybody can that can make the link. You know, it, it's almost like you need to, if you'll pardon the pun, plant the seeds. <laughs> you know, it, it can be complex like that. And I think what the green economy has done quite badly is it, and maybe quite well, in fact, depending who you talk to, is it has appealed to sort of the tree-hugging modern yogi who looks at the green economy and is largely fixing problems for the rich. But really, if you take it down to the core in South Africa where we experience so much inequality, we can see our municipalities don't have ratepayers to serve low-income communities. We have mass globalization coming in, which means that our government isn't serving um, our, our, our poor communities with waste solutions, with water solutions. And the reason they're not doing it is because we just do not have 
the ratepayers and the financial the, the financial capability to to roll out infrastructure in a traditional means. So I think what you know when it really touches people is when they you know they they they're sitting with pit latrines in 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 townships like like Kaimandi there 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 have very little uh, or very few energy sources um and really starting to tackle um how do you tackle affordable solutions that are part community driven and part enterprise driven in a way that is far more cost effective i think actually brings it down to becoming very very real um i think the green economy has you know been largely um advertised and marketed in what you know in places like Singapore or Hong Kong as being something that is out of the reach of the common person but i think in south africa i think there are real innovations that can that can really support the poor and i think we can bring these products and services but we we're going to have to bring them through entrepreneurs and the non-profit sector and and government is not going to be able to touch them with the scale um but then you always face with that problem is in the low income markets is that you've got really a lack of disposable income so your mm. products or services have to be very affordable or you have to work in partnership with government to try subsidize some of these costs Yes and you know it's very much a sort of a community thing I'm just thinking what recently I went to the Jeffries Bay wind farm in, in Jeffries Bay and what they're doing there is actually or, or maybe it was spin if you'll again pardon the pun but uh, it seemed like it was benefiting the community enormously for all sorts of reasons you know so it just takes one good idea that can have a sort of a ripple effect so but enough of all the sort of um you know the assumptions and the speculation how does this work then i think you're you're operating in kenya and here in south africa so if somebody has got a business can they go online and and apply what do they have to do to sort of sign up to be part of your program sure so applications are now open and they're open till the end of november and really they've got to go to they can go to our website um, impactamplifier.co.za mm-hmm. um or vc4africa.org, and they'll be able to find um, the the South African and Kenyan program. And really, they've they've got to apply. We're looking for innovations that are not idea at idea stage, but they're really at the prototype stage. They've got something that's working. They've got, and they potentially are even generating income out of that uh, out of their project. They're looking for investment capital. They have a model that can scale. We can see some clear commercial model that can scale. But even more importantly, um, can we see a very clear positive environmental and social impact from scaling that business? And if they meet their criteria and they fill in the application form, um, we, we, from the beginning of December, will start the selection process by mid-September, um, it, 17th of December, if, um, if I'm correct. We'll be making a selection. And the program will start in Cape Town. We, we, we're looking for South African-wide innovations, but we're the the four-month program that we're putting them through these entrepreneurs is partly in class um, and partly online. So we do have uh, we do have uh, in-class sessions every two weeks. So there are eight modules, and every two weeks there are in-class sessions. And really, what we'll be doing there is taking them through the step-by-step process of coming out with fundable documents will be working very much on their business strategy how they're accessing the markets how they're pricing their products what are their products and services and by the end of it having fundable documents and then we'll be starting the process after the four months in April we'll start the process of exposing the best of those innovations to investors 
and hopefully we'll raise uh, some money for these entrepreneurs and, and help them scale. Yeah, and a bit of awareness too. You say it's happening in Cape Town. What if you live in Durban? What if you've got a really good idea happening in Bloemfontein or Blickystorp or wherever it may be? Is it, is it only going to be in Cape Town? Well, so this year is a pilot. We're, okay. we're, and we're taking 10 entrepreneurs into the program. We, we, you know, Nancy, it's, it's a very intense process that requires in-class sessions. So we had to choose uh, a, a province and a city to, to start, and Cape Town was the province, just because of, of the volume of green innovations that are happening out of the province currently. But after the pilot uh, this year, next year, we will be scaling it to Johannesburg and KwaZulu-Natal initially, and we'll be going on to that trajectory. So it's really just a pilot at this phase, but uh, out of Cape Town. So yes, they will have to fly in for those classes. And uh, but there, there, there are ways that you know if they go through the application process, we can support them in many different ways. So we really are advising them to apply and put themselves into our database. And and if innovations are worthwhile, we, I think we'll impact amplifier at least will be able to also still work with them. Well, it's a start. It's a start. So it's impactamplifier.co.za, or did you say VC for Africa? Yes, VC with a four, the numeric four, okay. um, Africa.org. And uh, on, on our website, on the first uh, news article, you'll see the, uh, the stories and the links uh, to fill in the application. And, uh, and and there will be marketing. We we've partnered with Green Cape and 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 government, and we're going to start really uh, marketing out for the next two months. So we should see a lot more activity going on. Well, we look forward to finding out who the uh, who the uh, successful applicants have been. So Max, do stay in touch. Thank you, Nancy, Excellent. and thank you for having me on your show this evening. Pleasure. Max, picture look, and uh, if you'd like to find out a little bit more, maybe you're a, a green pioneer. Uh, if you'd like to be part of their accelerator program, check the site. It's impactamplifier.co.za or VC4, the number 4, Africa.org. And as far as I know, that also is up on our Facebook page. So you're listening to The Enviro Show. Stay with us. The Enviro Show. We're moving from things rather technical to things rather yummy because in our forage feature tonight we thought we'd take a look at berries seeing as they're soon coming into season in particular at blueberries with a company in the Amatoli region of the Eastern Cape called simply Amatoli Berries. Well to tell us a little bit more we have the CEO on the line he's Ryan Davies. Hi Ryan. Hi Nancy. Nice to have you with us. How long have you been in the berry business? Thank you Nancy. Since about 2007 when uh, Amatoli Berries began as a a dream child of a friend of mine. Okay. Are you a farmer that you went into the berry business or are you an entrepreneur or a um, berry lover? There's a saying that accountants are taking over the world. So uh, I was an accountant, but now I'm a blueberry farmer. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yes, they do say that you start off as an accountant and then you can do all sorts of other things because you've got the financial backing. So blueberry farmers, I mean, blueberries are a little bit of a luxury item. Are they a delicate flower or are they a delicate uh, um uh, product to, to be producing? Nancy, um, I think um, blueberries have been um, something that one associates with, with old ladies and tea parties historically, but perhaps that's changing more and more. And it's, um, you know, today the industry is growing uh, rapidly in South Africa, and uh, it, it certainly is a, a robust fruit. The cultivars that are being grown today are, are far more robust with a longer shelf life and, uh, and uh, you know, good taste, good, uh, good sugars. Um, a nice fruit to eat, and there's development ongoing all the time. So um, 
Yeah, it's a, it's a capital-intensive business. It takes quite a bit of money to set up, but uh, it is a, a high-value crop and is recognized as such. And the, the potential in the South African market and indeed internationally is growing at a rapid rate. High value, high value uh, nutritionally or high value because the demand is growing? I mean, they are definitely creeping increasingly into the supermarkets. Are they, is it because they're so nutritious or, or what is the, the, the value of them? Um, Nancy, blueberries have a very high uh, level of antioxidants. Um, so, you know, access to antioxidants is, 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 is good. The, the level of sugars in the fruit, um, if you balance the level of sugars in the fruit as a whole, are not excessive. So they're not, uh, they're not a, um, a fruit that would be uh, detrimental to a diabetic in their diet, for example. Mm. Um, they, are, they are great tasting, and they, they just, they're, they're, um, the Indians used to use them apparently in days of old for, for stomach ailments. They're a kind of fruit that, that, doesn't, uh, that doesn't disagree with one generally. And, um, you know, the health benefits are, are readily accessible. You can read up about it on the Internet, but uh, a good fruit for, for, for um, taking in antioxidants. Hmm. And that's probably its best selling point at the moment. Hmm. Um, which is probably one of the reasons why you went into them as well, because, you know, as I say, they're definitely sort of emerging. But are they, are they requiring the fact that you're there in the Eastern Cape? Are you there because uh, the conditions are right for them? Nancy. How tolerant are they? A couple of things. Traditionally, um, um, you know, we grow we grow blueberries counter-cyclically. So when the northern hemisphere production comes to an end, the southern hemisphere takes advantage of that and and starts pushing the fruit, you know, into the northern hemisphere. But um, the project itself was started because blueberry blueberry farming is so labour intensive. Um, the project was started with the Industrial Development Council as a a means to create jobs in an area traditionally um, in a rife with unemployment and poverty. And also, um, blueberries need to grow in a, in, a, in a medium where the pH is below 7, around about 5. Um, so you need water and you need a, a medium that's acidic. And we are situated close to a, to a, um, um, a, a timber plantation, and uh, that, made, that made it a logical choice to start there. Further, furthermore, the, the traditional growers are established in the southern and western Cape, so it was not a bad idea to uh, to expand the footprint, um, and the climate is good as well. Yes. Hmm. Interesting that you, you do it counter cyclically. I suppose. Does that mean that you're uh, exporting quite a lot? Yes. The the um, at the moment all the blueberry producers are um, hurrying around madly trying to get their product overseas. You know the the season would have come to an end now in in uh, April May, and uh, we we have an opportunity between. October and December to get into the markets before um, before the South American fruit lands. The South Americans produce about 125,000 tons a year. South Africa only produces just short of 5,000 tons. So there's great scope for growth. But we have a small window where, where no one is, is really competing with us. So um, pricing is good and the returns, you know, the returns are great. Well, now that you've told the whole nation about it, I'm sure everybody's going to start take out blueberry farming. But you say that it's quite labour and labour intensive. It needs a particular type of soil. I, I suppose the soil can be adjusted. Is it worthwhile um, producing on a small scale? I mean, I don't know what sort of hectareage you've got under berry, as it were. How many? You know, is, is it something you can produce on a small scale, really? Um, Nancy, to give you an idea, the, the capital cost. To establish a hectare ranges between about 750,000 rand to about a million rand a hectare. 
And to recover that, you know, it requires quite a crop. So if you're farming anything less than, less than um, uh, I'd say, about 90 to 100 hectares, it is difficult. You need to be a niche producer. You need to have some very unique selling point or cultivar that, uh, that, that uh, holds something that the others don't. So it does take time to recover your investment, but with a good marketing program, and certainly with, with uh, the interest being shown by the local retailers and the opportunity to export with the right cultivars planted, you know, anywhere between, I suppose, 50 and 100 hectares, you, you could get away with it. How many different cultivars of blueberry are there? Now you've asked me something I don't know. Um, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> traditionally, you have, you have northern highbush and southern highbush cultivars, and then things called rabbit eyes. Really, all, all those are cultivars that need different levels of, of cold mm. to grow. So some high bush varieties grow on a higher bush, low bush varieties grow on a, low bu- a lower bush. Rabbit eyes have a, have a, a, a flowering, uh, the flowering part of the, of the berry looks like a rabbit's eye. But uh, really, it's just how, how much cold the berries need to survive and uh, or to, to flourish. Yeah. In South Africa, we, you know, we don't have the cold units that they, that they achieve overseas because of the climate. The more and more we are planting cultivars with low, low chill requirements that, that can blossom and bud and, and, and flourish. Mm. What, lots of questions, but I'll keep it short. I'm just looking at the time. Um, you say that they're very labour-intensive. Why? Are they very dainty to pick? Or, you know, can one sort of shake the bush and they all fall off like olives? Or um, why? And do they need protecting? If you, if you look at a, a blueberry, Nancy, the best blueberries have something called a blush. Um, they have that, that sort of um, opaque look to them. It's, a, it's mm-hmm. a film that the blueberry has. And um, one has to handle them carefully because uh, a blueberry with a good blush um, is, it will fetch a better price. Um, to pick them, you know, the, the, bushes are not, uh, the bushes are not easily accessible necessarily, so you require, you require the, you know, and a certain number of staff to, to pick them effectively. I know they do harvest them mechanically in, in, in the United States, but they have such vo- large volumes there that they can afford to, to deal with the waste, whereas you know, we would try and harvest uh, every single berry and mm. get a return on it if we can. Yeah, gosh, the thought of them being wasted is absolutely wicked, isn't it? What's the biggest threat to them, then? Is it, is it weather? Are there, are there little creatures that like to munch them? What's, yeah, what's your worst nightmare? Yeah, look, uh, I suppose it's a combination of those things. Um, if, if one, the, the Western Cape had rain during the season last year, which, which, re, which really was detrimental to the quality of the berries, it was something that we, we benefited from. Our, rain, our rainfall was lower. So that is one, you know, one, um, one area of concern. Um, if you know wine, grapes, you know, the, the diseases that affect a grape can affect a blueberry. And then pests, the pests that, that affect uh, the berries. Um, we don't know in South Africa yet you know, the extent to which pests will evolve or, or will emerge, you know. But, um, but so far we've been, we've been fortunate in that there's, there's no great pestilence that, that causes damage to the crops. There was a, a good spraying program and following the protocols recognised by the, you know, the good, good farming standards, one can generally, you know, cope with, with what comes your way. Five thousand tons per annum. That doesn't sound like. Well, it actually does sound like quite a lot. But uh, how many of how much of that stays in South Africa? How big is our demand? And uh, um, and see, I would say at least seventy percent of that would leave the country. Um, the 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 price of blueberries obviously um, precludes it from being popular mm. in the entire market. But more and more, um, as as plantings expand. And as uh, fruit becomes available, I think pricing will, will ameliorate and uh, we will find that it becomes more and more popular. 
Um, following that, you know, processing berries in, in dried form or in frozen form in different kinds of snack packs will evolve over time. So um, I think you'll see blueberries become more and more popular and more and more affordable, hopefully, as well. Yes, absolutely. Ditto to all of that. But a product development, I'm sure, wouldn't go amiss at all. Gosh, it's been really fascinating. Thank you so much, Ryan, and uh, wish you every success. And um, I'm sure that if we, if the demand is big enough, that you, you can expand your, your production to much, much more. Lovely. Thank you very much. Good luck. Thank you, Nancy. Take care. Ryan Davies, he's the CEO of Amatoli Berries. Well, if you'd like to check it out, and they really are hell of a good for you from everything that I understand, and certainly from what we've heard from Ryan there. Check their website. It's amatoliberries.co.za, amatoliberries.co.za. Well, finally, we heard last week from one of the winners in the Ecologic Awards. Well, tonight we have another. He's a man who earned himself the title of eco-warrior. He's Kelvin Cochrane. He's the founder of the civic-led ecological rehabilitation innovative practice from the Cape Flats, Grassy Park, to be exact. And we have him on the line. Hi, Kelvin. Hi, good evening. Nice to have you with us and congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Good. Eco-warrior. Um, how did you get to be an eco-warrior, Kelvin? Because I'm, uh, I'm looking at your bio here, and I see that actually you're a baker by profession. How did you get into the environmental business? Well, that's correct. You know, it's, uh, a couple of years ago, around about 2005, I sort of uh, bought a piece of ground in the Zikoflay area and looked at the wasteland of Zikoflay and thought to myself, no, something needs to be done about this. And then I got myself involved in terms of uh, reinventing the space. And uh, that's how I got involved in terms of taking trash spaces and creating wonderful sanctuaries and sort of open spaces for people, you know. And um, that has been coming on a long time since a youngster, you know, because of the apartheid era, uh, the people couldn't, uh, move much on this. We had to leave the country and then, of course, go and study overseas. So we had to, because of uh, how we grew up, uh, we had to become bakers because your father was a baker and that sort of thing, you know, to put food on the table. So only after 1994, I think that awakening started and that awakening a lot of people, you know, people of color. And I think that was always a part of me and I've displayed that in many aspects of, of what I've done over the last couple of years. Tell us a little bit about what you've done over the last couple of years, because it seems that you, you started off, you know, it's your personal passion, but I think that you've encouraged a lot of other people. So tell us about your what you've actually done. Yes, well, I started in 2005 with the Bottom Road Sanctuary. That's the northern side of Zikoflade, where I did 50,000 plants and uh, about 250 trees. Then I turned my attention to a park over the road, which was a rubbish dump site. I reinvented that site and built a sense of community around the park, which I called an eco-park, where I planted about 400 uh, plants, put about 300 trees, and sort of uh, got all the kids and the community involved. Uh, I created a space basically for people to enjoy to have birthday parties and entertain themselves. I put a bright little spot there and that. So I just wanted to change the way we see things. And then I did the Lake Road Park, which I'm still busy with at the moment. And then I turned my attention to the Princess Flay and started a project called The Dressing of the Princess. Mm. Basically what they wanted to do is put a mall and I came with an alternative plan. 
yeah. Oh, goodness me. Where, where did you, I mean, the planting of so many trees, all these things, I mean, it's, it's all very well to be passionate, but one does need a little bit of money behind all this. Have you, have you had to fundraise, or have you found that people are willing to come forward and donate? Well, I think that's the success story, and that's the passion. You know, everything that's done is always about the money. And mm. I've showed and displayed that without any funding, and sort of drawing partnerships, maybe with the wetlands group, Sandy, um, uh, with the city. I drew those partnerships and I took money out of my pocket and funded all my operations, you know. So basically, I have never received one cent. All my projects, all my projects have been done out of my pocket. And um, that to me is an amazing feat for the people of the Cape Flats that one can, without money, reinvent spaces yeah you know kelvin uh kelvin i'm going to give out your there's a website bottomroadsanctuary.co.za where people can see more bottomroadsanctuary.co.za and that's up on our facebook page as well but i just have to ask you um about this because apparently as an entrepreneur you recently developed a whole line of functional designs out of recycled fridges what oh yeah that <laughs> that is an amazing uh, i think you know that's what I would say, that is the greatest recyclable product ever because what I did was I took old fridges of dumps, created into uh, spice racks, uh, fruit and veg racks, beauty racks, uh, uh, glass, uh, glass racks. Ach, it's just an amazing feat, you know. And uh, wh why I did it was, what I was thinking about is people sort of, you know, people living in Chanty mm -hmm. and, uh, and they haven't got for goods, right, uh, for furniture. So what they need to do is use, of course, the wall, you know, the the, 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 the fence and whatever they have. Mm -hmm. And these stuff that we put against, because all the stuff goes against the, um, the wall or the, uh, 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 the, the sheets uh, that they have. The corrugated iron. Corrugated iron, yeah. 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 So at uh, and it's, you can use it, you know, in other words, uh, a glass fridge could become a toy rack, you know. A beauty caddy could become a spice rack. So it can be used all over the place, you know, and it's cheap because you buy it of like 25, 30 around a door uh, by the junkyard, get a spray can, spray it. And people can reinvent their homes as well. So what I was looking at is the reinvention first from the front, outside their houses, with the planting and that sort of thing, and then inside their houses to create their little places, like sort of toppling places, and that uh, that uh, 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 that was the ideology behind everything. Kelvin, I can't help wondering what sort of childhood you had that you have such an unbelievably inventive mind. It's been absolutely fascinating, and congratulations on becoming the Eco Warrior winner. What, what does it mean? Have, does, does the Eco Warrior prize come with with any sort of financial reward? No, no financial rewards. You know, I think it was also just uh, great for the people of the Cape Flats that something on the Cape Flats has been noted and has been exceptional in terms of what has happened. And I mean, from that also, I have started uh, the CAMPS organization, environmental organization, which stands for caring and managing public spaces. So a lot mm. has come up or has come out of 
the bottom road sanctuary where I started, which I've always said is the epicenter of the new thinking of the way things would have to be done in the future. And I think there was a lot of lessons to be learned from that. Well, there have been a lot of lessons learned from just chatting to you. Kelvin Cochrane, thank you very much. Well done. Take care. Thank you very much. My thank pleasure. You. Kelvin Cochrane, he's an eco-warrior winner in the Ecologic Awards. But if you would like to check out what he's done, see a little bit more, check his site. It's bottomroadsanctuary.co.za, bottomroadsanctuary.co.za. And check it out on our Facebook page, which is the Enviro Show on SAFM. Well, thanks very much, team. That's Albert Clarsons working desperately hard. And also Kim Winter and I'm Nancy Richards. And up next, it's time for Stephen Kirker to bring you lots of news and music. Hi, Stephen.